He is the mighty king, master of everything. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord, he's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages, almighty God is he. Bow down before him, love and adore him. His name is wonderful, Jesus, my Lord. This is what we were looking at, one of the aspects that we were looking at in the Sunday school hour this morning. Loving and adoring the Lord Jesus Christ, what difference does it make in our lives? Because if we truly love and adore the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to change every aspect of our life, not just the Sunday morning. It's going to make us a believer in every part of our lives. It means that there are things maybe that we used to say that we're not going to say anymore. It means that there are going to be things that we watch or that we listen to or that we act or whatever it may be that we think about that we used to do those things. And now, as Paul told the church of Corinth, such were some of you. But now you're washed. You're sanctified, you're justified. You have been made, that's a legal term, and it simply means, so sometimes we can use these long words, but it simply means that your account has been reckoned to be clear with God. It's not just as if you had never sinned, but it's that Jesus Christ has borne your sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He has taken your sin upon himself. He became sin for us, he who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the message of the gospel. This is the truth of God's word. And he says that when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8, that you will live in such a way that you will reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5 is clear that, we again, we looked at that this morning in the Sunday school, that we are to be salt and light and so that the world will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. This morning we are looking at the first of a couple of messages. Is he worthy? Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. The age of oratorios, and for those of you who do not like classical music, you're just going to have to bear with us this morning. How many of you do like classical music? Okay, good. Hopefully the rest of you will be revived this week. Start listening. No, I'm just kidding. There is some beautiful music that is to be found out there. I mean, it's hard to listen to uh, 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 composers like Bach or Mozart or Tchaikovsky, and just the crescendo as this music just fills your head and you wonder how in the world did they even do that? I mean, most of the modern stuff is, I think I was watching a documentary not too long ago, and it said most of the modern stuff is simply three chords and they just change it up a little bit and uh, put different words to it. Well, those old musicians and the composers, they knew how to put music scores together. The age of oratorios began around 1600. By an oratorio, we are talking, for example, like Handel's Messiah or Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And an oratorio is described as a large-scale musical work for orchestra and voices, typically a narrative that is found to be on a religious theme, and it is performed without the use of costumes, scenery, or action. In the 1700s, along came Handel in the early part of the 1700s, and he wrote 29 oratorios by himself. 
Do an internet search and you will find that the famous of most famous of all oratorios ever written is Handel's Messiah. Not just of the works that he did, but of all time, the greatest one is Handel's Messiah. And this is where it begins to get very interesting. Messiah was a 260-page musical score written for all instruments. And it was written in just 24 days. It is said that Beethoven, whose works include, as I mentioned, the Ninth Symphony and the hymn Ode to Joy, held Handel in high esteem and called him the greatest of all composers. One musical foundation noted this, quote, The lasting popularity of Messiah owes to the work's moving text drawn from the Bible. It starts with prophecy and moves to his incarnation or his birth and then to his death and the resurrection. The life of Christ, and this is on a non-religious website, the life of Christ has been called the greatest story ever told. Last week we saw a greater oratorio for John that he saw in his direct vision of the throne room of the King of Kings, something greater than Handel could have ever possibly imagined. In chapter 4, we saw the start of all of creation's greatest musical work as the four living creatures and then the four and twenty elders begin their hymn of praise to the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. For those of you who like classical music, how many of you have ever heard Handel's Messiah? The whole thing. It's very, very moving. Job chapter 38 and verse 7 speaks of the angels being present at the start of creation. And Job is asked this question by God. Where were you, Job, when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Of course, Job was not there. And yet the universe rang with, as we sing the hymn, praise to the Almighty, the King of creation. The four living creatures that are almost indescribable began this hymn in chapter 4 by extolling the holiness of God, a similar scene to what we find in Isaiah chapter 6 where the seraphim are crying out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And as these four living creatures and, and the 24 elders, they sing of the worthiness to the Lord who alone is worthy of glory and honor and praise, there is a pause in the music, almost as if there is a brief interlude. For those of you who have gone to hear Handel's Messiah, you'll know that about midway through, a little bit more than midway through uh, this oratorio, there's actually an intermission. Everybody can go and get a drink or go and take a break, a bathroom break or whatever, because you know that there is a crescendo. It is building up to something wonderful. As they go through chapters like Isaiah chapter 53 and chapter 55 in this musical score, you realize how awful it must have been for the perfect Lamb of God coming down to this earth. And as these choir members, as they are singing about 
the Lord Jesus Christ coming down and, and you read the words or you hear the words, who has believed our report? To, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's almost like you can't begin to picture and imagine. Well, maybe, for example, have you ever seen, how many of you have ever seen The Passion of the Christ? I am not endorsing the movie, but the Passion, it had some very bad, bad, bad theology. But the Passion of the Christ is probably the closest I think we will ever see in this life to what it actually looked like for the Lord Jesus Christ to be beaten to a pulp. To be beaten so bad, as Isaiah said, that it was not even possible for us to recognize that he was even a human being. That's how badly he was beaten. We get this picture sometimes in our mind and, 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 and a lot of churches, different, different church groups or denominations have kind of painted this picture where, where Jesus is up on the cross and he is hanging there and he's got this little crown of thorns and there's one or two trickles of blood coming down and, and there's a drop or two of blood coming out of his hands and out of his feet. No, there, it was much, much more than that. And as if the physical pain was not enough, God the Father turns his back on his only begotten Son because he cannot bear to look on iniquity. Take a walk with Isaiah through the entire book. See the glory of God and then see the Lamb of God be destroyed in chapter 53, but also get to the end of those 66 chapters in chapter 64 through 66 and realize the wonder of what it will be like when Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. So we have this pause. And in this pause, John looks up, front, looks up to the throne and he sees God high and lifted up. But there's something a little bit different about this vision. There are many who have written on the scroll, by the way, down through the centuries. And I believe as I was studying through this, I didn't get any new revelation. But I do believe that the one thing that if you miss everything else today that you need to understand... Chapter 5 is not about the scroll. Chapter 5 is about the one who opens the scroll. Chapter 5 is about the wonder of Jesus Christ who has the authority to be able to open this scroll, who has the right not only to extend righteousness to those whom he sets his love upon, but he also has the right to bring judgment, righteous judgment against the world. We mentioned this again in Sunday school, but every message that you find from the Old Testament prophets through John the Baptist, through the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Apostle Paul as he is standing before Felix and Agrippa, they all preach the same thing, sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. There are a lot of people that don't like that message. They want to feel good about themselves when they leave. And I would rather you not feel good about yourself if you do not have a heart that has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This oratorio continues and the narrative begins to seek to find one who is able to open the scroll. John listens. He watches he wants to know whether the scroll will be open. And, and yet the scroll is not being handed to someone else in heaven. It is being held securely in the hands of Jesus Christ. 
He remains in the hands of the one who sits on the throne as questions begin to arise. Who is worthy? Can the scroll be opened? Who has the right to open the scroll? What does the scroll contain? Why does the lamb hold the scroll? And more importantly, is he worthy? Point number one is the scroll. And I apologize, I thought I had printed off the notes for this morning. I, I was, I'm fortunate I even found my Bible this morning. Um, it's, just been, it's just been one of those weeks and it was sitting right here with my notes and I used it in Sunday school, came up here, sat it down and then promptly forgot where I left it. So it, you saw me between services and I was going all over the building trying to figure out where I had placed my Bible and it was right here. Glad none of you have that kind of problem. A scroll would have normally been made from a type of animal skin or a papyrus, which was made out of a reed that was crushed. And that reed, after it was crushed, it would be soaked over a period of time. They would use those and weave them together to be able to have like a parchment. Each end was rolled up into the middle, so it would be something similar to this right here. You would have the scroll, which would be anywhere from 15 to 20 feet in length, and they would begin rolling from each end, and it would be rolled up so that it would look similar to this. This is what a bit of biblical scroll would have been. Okay? It was then sealed by the author, and the only person who was entitled to open it was the recipient whose name was found written on the outer edge of the scroll. That'll become important later on. One commentary noted this, this kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by the Romans as well as the Jews. The full contract would be written on the inner pages and it would be sealed with seven seals. The content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. Many types of contracts were sealed this way and the Hebrews had a similar practice in what was known as a title deed. It was folded and required at least three witnesses and three seals. A portion of the text was written, it was folded over or rolled over, and it was sealed. Then the next section would be written, it would be folded over or rolled, and then that would be sealed as well. The larger the number of witnesses, the more important the document. So here we have a number seven, which in the Bible has always seemed to represent completion as well as perfection. So whether it's actually seven seals in this particular case, we know because we saw the seven spirits of God earlier in Revelation. In this particular uh, area, we do find seven seals because chapter six is going to begin, begin unpacking these seven seals when judgment comes. Secondly, the question of worthiness. This scroll is the title deed of redemption and of judgment. And it assures us that Christ receives what is rightfully his. We know that he alone is victor, but he also is, as we mentioned uh, in regards to the scroll, he also is the recipient. When we speak of the Bible, we speak of it being the word of who? God. He is the one who has the right. He also is the one who not only created all things, but in John chapter one, we find in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. 
There is no doubt in the minds of those who are in heaven of the worthiness of the one who sits upon the throne. And yet before we get too much farther, we find John almost has this premature response because he begins weeping loudly. Who is, who is worthy to be able to open this book? And of course, John not being in a glorified body at this point, he is, uh, although an elderly man, he is watching this unfold and he almost has a momentary lapse where he realizes and he sees that the scroll is in the hand of God, but he doesn't know that God is able to open up the scroll. There are many people who believe that Satan controls this world and that God has simply taken a hands-off approach. This verse proves that no, he does not. God still controls all things. He is still providentially in control of everything. Whatever goes on in your life, it is done or that event takes place because God has allowed it. God has authorized that to take place. So when we're going down the road and you get a flat tire or you have a problem that comes in your life, whatever it may be, a lot of the reasons is because there's some kind of sin or something that is in the world. And because that sin is in the world, we do find struggles. But when we look at what takes place in our life, we have to believe that God is able to be able to take all of these things and work them out for his honor and his glory. Romans chapter 8. So let's read again verse 1 through verse 3. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. Thirdly, we find not just the seal or the question of worthiness, but we find the one who has the authority to open the scroll. Kingdoms and empires have come and gone down through the years, haven't they? Many rulers have sought to make a mark on the world and leave a legacy, but every empire that has come and gone, for example, Egypt, the Grecian Empire, Babylon, Persia, Rome, China, Stalin's Russia, Nazi Germany, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, and others, they have all sought to leave their mark. But the problem is they all died. None of them ever returned. Their empires did not last. Even Nazi Germany was supposed to be a thousand-year Reich. Lasted all of about six years. When we look at the scriptures and we realize, and, and, and I want to say this, several of you know where I stand in the area of politics. It doesn't matter who wins or who loses this coming Tuesday. What matters is that you and I as believers remember that God is still in control no matter who wins, no matter who loses. It does us no good to stay up late and eat the bread of sorrows if we forget that God is sovereign and that he places one above another. Promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west, but from the Lord. And 
it would behoove true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to remember that God is neither Democrat or Republican. Jesus Christ, for those who are British by birth, is neither Tory or Labor Party. We would do well to remember what the angels said to Gideon when Gideon asked him, are you on our side or are you for them? The angel of the Lord said, neither. I stand before the king of kings. You would do well to worship God. That is what is most important. Another two years, another four years, people are going to change. People are going to come. People are going to go. People are going to die. They're going to pass off the scene. And, and, and staying up late is not going to change one single thing. Just a word of encouragement to you. Trust the fact that God has who he has in store, whether it's for Wyoming or whether it's for this country. You know, for years we have lived in a country that has demeaned the sanctity of life. We have murdered almost 70 million babies. We have demeaned the sanctity of marriage where marriage is now you and whoever or whatever it is that you want to marry. This isn't National Enquirer news. This is, this is not news of the world anymore. This is actual events that are taking place. And you can see them every single week. People that are marrying either two men, two women. You can proclaim that you're one of 87 different genders and you can marry your computer if you want to. And people do not see that the real problem is not that they can't find their own identity. They the problem is that they want to undermine who God is. God is the one who establishes the law. He's the one that establishes the absolutes. And so when now when things take place, like the elections that are coming up, we have to simply commit it to God. God, if, if you want us to go through judgment, then you're going to put the right people in place. If you're going to be gracious and merciful to us and you're going to allow us a little bit more time in this world, then so be it. But trust him. Ultimately, we need to remember that the true enemy is not the other side of the aisle. The true enemy is the evil one who seeks to destroy the lives of men and women. Amen? As, Paul, or as John writes here, he says, no one in heaven, no one in earth, no one under the earth. This is a man who knows the power of Caesar. This is the man who has already spent time in a boiling pot of oil, according to tradition, because the, because the Caesar at the time decided that he didn't like John's message. He knows what power is. If you go back, if you're not a, if you're not a, an avid reader of history, go back. I know uh, brother brother Tim and I we have talked about this. You want to talk about depravity? You want to talk about violence? The Phoenicians started crucifixion. The Romans perfected it and were proud of that. They could put a man on the cross and he would live for up to three weeks on the cross. One Caesar actually took the Christians and actually put them in his garden and put them on sticks, bathed them in oil and set them alight to be able to light his night dinner parties. And yet as John is writing this, he knows what's going on. He has suffered under the wicked hands and he says there is only one person and it is not Caesar that has the authority to open this scroll. 
Caesar doesn't even have the ability to look in it. And here's where we find John's premature grief. The Greek word here does not mean to weep silently, which is another word that is found throughout the Gospels. This word means to weep and to sob aloud as a lament that comes as the sign of pain and grief for the object that is signified. John in his state as he is, as he is in his vision before God, he is just racked with sobs. John is overwhelmed with the thought that nobody has the ability to be able to open this up, not only for the purposes of the believers, but also for righteous judgment to befall, as there are Christians who, I believe it is in, where, where are we at here? Uh, chapter... I apologize, I forgot to write this down. But we are told later on in Revelation that, no, it's earlier on, I believe it's in chapter 1 that we already looked at. And, and John writes and he says, they are before, the martyrs are before the throne and they are saying, oh Lord, how long? How long is this going to take place? Honestly, as I listen to the news and not, not the normal news, but I follow like these two organizations that I mentioned to you earlier and I get these news reports every single week of another person who has got into eternity or has been persecuted or has been assaulted in some way. I also have to pray in my mind, Lord, how long will they have to go through this? It is this type of grief that we find from Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. Do you remember the account? A voice was heard in Ramah because Herod decided that he is going to kill all the children under two. Weeping and loud lamentation comes from Rachel, weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. This is not a weeping that is just one or two tears falling from the face. This is heart-wrenching, screams and laments and cries that are going on. This is what John is doing. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, Peter remembers the saying of, the, of Jesus Christ, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and went bitterly. This is the same type of sobs that John has, that Peter had. Because he has fulfilled the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has stood up in front of these people and he has said, may these curses be upon me if I even know the man. Dr. W.A. Criswell notes this comment. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Quote, they represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over the first grave of their own son, Abel. As they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of Abel and watched as their son walked into the distance. They are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They're the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cry unto heaven 
They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience in the trials and sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments that are indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hands of him who holds it, that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan, that devil. And I wept audibly, for the failure to find a redeemer meant that this earth and its curse is consigned. Forever to death. It would mean that death, sin, damnation, and hell would reign forever, and you and I would have no hope. It means the sovereignty of God's earth would remain. Forever in the hands of Satan and you and I would rightly spend all of our eternity in hell. So is he worthy? Yes, he is. This is where we come to verse 5 in our conclusion. The comfort of the elders says in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, one of these 24 elders, weep no more. You may have been struggling, John, with all the things that you have gone on, that have happened in your life, the things and the trials and the persecution that you've gone through. You need to understand that the one who is on the throne has not abdicated his throne. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And here the elder says to him, don't weep anymore. John is comforted by the truth that the one who sits on the throne, he's no ordinary man. There's no reason to remain distraught For God truly is sovereign. He is the rightful owner. He has conquered over all. The victory has already been announced and nobody can stop him. The Savior has the right to open the scroll. He has the right to open the seals. This scroll that portrays the redemption of the believers as we began the message and the seals are the opening and unleashing of the judgments that will fall from chapter 6 through chapter 8. I am amazed that there are a lot of Christians who are afraid of the book of Revelation. 
I've had people tell me, no, I won't read the book of Revelation, but I just don't understand it. It's too scary. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand that the sovereign God who opens the seals and all of the awful things that take place, you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never suffer at the hands of the wrath of God. That should bring rejoicing to you and I. We shouldn't live in fear. I mean, our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ around the world, they're struggling. They're going to be some who are going to go out into eternity and they're going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior even this week, maybe even today. What if it was our turn? We need to understand that the rightful owner owns not just this universe, but he owns you and I too. The Lion of Judah, a picture of this great beast, is represented. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14 reminds us that although unknown to Christ, or unknown to Moses, Christ was a priest that was higher and more excellent than both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods put together. A greater has come. John would have known this. He would have probably had a writing or would have been able to read the scroll of Hebrews whoever it is that wrote it. And here he sees and this elder reminds him that the great high priest is still there. The one who is the root of David. Christ is greater than David. But the covenant that was given by God promised that a descendant of David would always sit on the throne. And David's son Solomon sat on the throne and for a short time Absalom did as well. But what happened to them? They both died. Rehoboam died. Every king died until the Lord Jesus Christ came and he died once for all when he rose from the grave. He rose victorious over sin, hell, and the grave. He would forever be king. You may know the hymn, Is He Worthy? We're going to sing that, Lord willing, in another week. The scriptures tell us that he is worthy. He created all things and they were created for his glory. The end is coming and it may be right upon us. For the return of the eternal lamb, we don't know when he's going to come back. There's nothing in Revelation that says when he's going to come back. There's nothing in any other book that says when he is going to come back. We just know certain facts. And one is that he definitely is coming back. And the question is, are you ready? You see, when he comes, it will no longer be as the meek Jesus, the meek and mild lamb. He will come as the Lion of Judah. He is coming to rule. He is coming to reign. He will come and he will put all enemies under his feet as we see in Psalm 2. We see the heathen raging against the Lord and against his anointed, but God laughs and holds them in derision. We are a divided people on so many levels in this world. But this is the one area where we must understand and we must agree with God. His ways are truth, justice, and mercy.
prepare to meet your God. You see, we will meet him one day. We will close our eyes in death. It could be today, tomorrow, next week. It may not be for 10, 20, 30, 40 years or more. But you have no guarantee of when that will be. But you must be ready. And when you meet him, you will only meet him on one standard, and that's his. He will either be your savior or he will be your judge. Because if he is your savior, he cannot be your judge anymore. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Where do you stand before God this morning? Where do I stand? Are we prepared to meet him? Are you prepared to meet him? If so, then the promise of his word is that he will change you. Change to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And one day he is going to come back for us. What a glorious day that will be. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. And we are going to sing what number? 202.